Let me invite you to uh, find your way into your uh, copy of your Bible or Pew Bible. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1 today, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and reading down through the fourth verse of the next chapter. It's page 1396 in the Pew Bible, and you can find it, I'm sure, um, on your phone or on your pad or whatever. Uh, while you're turning there, just let me say again, uh, sort of an update of where we are. Um, uh, I've asked the elders, and they've graciously extended to me uh, next Sunday off. I'm going. Joyce and I are going to be sort of exploring what's one of our options that we're considering of where we will go next. And uh, so we appreciate your prayers. We try to figure all that out. And uh, so our brother Walter will be Walter Roder will be sharing the word next Sunday. Um, also, once you hope you have it on your calendar, uh, just a little heads up here. Uh, one of the favorite services I think we do here in our church is uh, the, the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. We do what Thanksgiving is all about. <laughs> we gather together and we offer up our thanks to God. Imagine that, uh, you know, such a, a newfangled idea, but it's one that's sort of been pushed now to the, to the margin. Uh, many people don't even think about taking time, uh, even in Christian homes. Uh, I've been in some Christian homes. We had tremendously amazing food, but no one ever shared anything they're thankful for uh, together with each other. Well, we're, we have a service on the 20, 21st of November here on that Wednesday night at 7.30. Be sure to plan ahead. Figure out your food preparation or something. Don't miss that service. It's really one of the most meaningful times and times that you can share and you can participate and you can offer your voice to give thanks to God. All right, um, let's look now at verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're reading from the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church there in Philippi. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. If therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose." Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. <clears throat> Again, our Father, as we look into your word, we need your help, for we are in need of the Holy Spirit to not only open the eyes of our hearts to understand 
what your spirit has inspired here. But also, Lord, we need your help by your spirit to see its impact, its practical uh, implications and applications to our lives, to see, Lord, how your word calls us to live in a way that's different than just the natural instincts and inclinations of our hearts. May you point all of us to Christ, we pray, as we look into your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We have seen, it seems to me, an abundance, I mean an abundance of evidence over the last couple of years and months that have led up to this past week of these midterm elections, this one observation, our country is a divided land. There's red, there's blue, there is the far right and the far left. There are conservatives, there are progressives. And the tone of discourse among these parties and groups has obviously noticeably worsened over the years. Now one reason that our world is divided, and there are many reasons, but I'd like us just to focus on a fundamental reason um, at, the, at the real core of all this. I think it has to do with spiritual realities. I'm not talking about the reality that if you're a conservative, you're spiritual, and you're a progressive, you're not. Don't, don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying to you is that the reason some people have become so passionate about political outcomes, they're so passionate about certain policies and certain personalities, is due, I'm convinced, to their worldview. It is their worldview that is now at play and that many today hold to a secular worldview where their lives are devoid of any input or any um, evidence of a divine being. They have taken God and completely removed him from the equation. There is no sense of anything transcendent in their lives. All they're living for is the here and now. And that governs all of life as they see it. And so these secular realities have become to some the ultimate reality, that this is all they have to live for, and therefore that's why they are so passionate about this. And we see going on now in our society the clashing of these worldviews. It's interesting that Christians, the followers of Jesus, cannot escape this idea of living in a divided world. The world was not some harmonious, peaceful tranquil, uh, you know, Shangri-La when the early church was started. There was so much division, and there still is division, particularly for the people of God, because the reality of living in the divided world is the fact that there is a, a division that remains in place since Christ has walked on the earth. And this division is a dividing line between unbelievers and believers. There are only two spiritual paths, according to the Scriptures, that a person can walk on in this life. Either one is walking on the broad road that leads to destruction, or one is walking on the narrow road that leads to life. There's no escaping the fact that there is animosity that exists between those who are spiritually regenerate and those who are non-regenerate or those who are not followers of Christ. You say, where did you get that? 
Well, the scriptures teach in numerous ways. Romans 8 verse 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. We also read in John chapter 3 that everyone who does evil hates the light that is Christ who has come into the world and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. There is a, an animosity that exists in the hearts and in the lives and the minds of those who are not believers toward Christ and toward the idea of being open with their lives before all men and before Christ. It's not surprising then that Paul, writing here in Philippians chapter 1, is alluding to a number of these realities in his, in his uh, letter, his epistle that he's composing here. Because he's urging the followers of Christ to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You saw that in verse 27. He says, what does that involve? Well, it means that we must face the realities of this division in our world by what? Standing firm in one spirit. We must, with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And he says, and don't be alarmed by the people who are opposed to you. There's the opposition. There's the division. He says, because a life, there's going to be a life in this world in which there will be suffering for Jesus. Verses 28 and 29. Christians are reminded that the gospel is the only power that can unite people with other people who are followers of Jesus. The gospel around which Christians unite inevitably is going to divide others who are at odds with Christ. They're not going to share in the things that we share together. And however, he, Paul goes on to point out that this disunity among the followers of Christ is a serious, serious problem. There is going to be disunity within the overall culture between believers and unbelievers, but he says that there should be no disunity among the followers of Jesus. Why? Because it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Division and disunity also undermines the witness of the church. The church that is the people of God who are united under the reign and rule of Christ, and it contradicts the gospel of grace. So much disunity among the people of God is due to, I'm convinced, and what Paul obviously saw, if you really want to get to the core of why there seems to be such issues of difficulty in this idea of people who can be united together, it's because of an elevated view of oneself. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. Philippians 2, verse 2. The call goes out from the apostle, Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I want to consider three observations about this lack of unity in our world. And I also want to conclude with looking at the one remedy to bring about true peace and true unity. First of all, let's consider the world's bankrupt attempts to unify mankind. The world has its own bankrupt strategies and attempts to unify mankind. Let's think on, first of all, the larger scale in our world today. Surveying our modern world, of course, there are no shortages of failures to bring about peaceful relationships. When you consider the international level, first of all, among nations, 
There is so much tension. There are so many issues that still remain between all of the various political nations of the world. And so it's not surprising that years ago, when the United Nations was founded in 1945, that their um, commission or their desire was at that time to have an organization that would foster peace, foster justice in our world, and humanitarian assistance to the various nations of the world. But the United Nations itself, sadly, in our day, is an institution that needs reform. It needs to deal with the areas where there is massive corruption, even within the United Nations itself. As a matter of fact, in my reading up for this, I noticed that the Human Rights Watch has called for the peacekeeping operations of the United Nations to root out among the people who are there located wearing the United Nations uniform, they are the ones who are guilty of committing all sorts of sexual exploitation and abuse. And that needs to be rooted out of the system. It is the United Nations Human Rights Council that is chaired often in the recent past and represented by nations that do not even give human rights to their own people. And yet here they are serving on this council. I mean, it it just seems so futile in what they're seeking to do. And of course, there's all of this money that's wasted, money that disappears in fraud every year. Now, am I saying that all the United Nations does is worthless and and, and is uh, no good at all? No, I'm not saying that at all. There are a number of things that they do humanitarian-wise, offering help and assistance around the world. It's very beneficial. We heard the nobles tell us of that numerous times as they rode and flew on United Nations planes. But human institutions, despite their noblest intentions, are unable and oftentimes unwilling to bring about the kind of international peaceful relations diplomats are longing for and oftentimes are striving for. It just doesn't happen internationally. Secondly, we also know if you think of a smaller scale in our world, think about the different uh, family issues or tribal issues that go on around our world. Again, there are various ethnic groups and tribes that continue to compete against one another. All sorts of violence, all sorts of conflict that goes on. Even with our own culture, we find that there's widespread Uh, lack of peace with this racial discord that continues to plague us as a society, ethnic tensions that have, have been accelerated over the years. We even find family units where the family itself is being ripped apart. It's not immune from divorce or from disunity, from the idea of people deserting it and, and abandoning each other within the context of the nuclear family. And so what happens in result of all of these tensions and difficulties, even on that level in our own land here? Well, secular forces will cry out and say, we need to have friendship and understanding among one another. That's what we really need. And they talk about the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. Others are soliciting that we live together peaceably. Can't we all just get along, they say. Well, these special appeals 
obviously are rooted in an assumption that human nature essentially is good. It's an optimistic view about what humans are really like at their core. And even when you bring it down into a personal level, isn't it true that all of us have certain assumptions about how life should operate? That we all have our own certain assumptions about other people, certain assumptions about what we deserve in life. We don't deserve to have to wait in long lines. We don't deserve to have to sit in traffic. We don't deserve to be uh, treated with anybody uh, showing us any disrespect at all, whatever. And so eventually we find ourselves expecting life to be a certain way for ourselves, which is natural. But I find it interesting that even if you do a survey, which I read about 3,000 teenagers were asked in a survey by the University of North Carolina, different things about their beliefs. One of the things that they drew a conclusion on was that teens believe that God wants people to be good, to be nice, and to be fair to each other. And essentially, they boiled down a survey of all these teens over the years and they found that the central goal of life, they concluded, was that we are to be happy, we're to feel good about oneself. That really boils it all down in the minds of these teens. And this idea of being nice, of course, is something that sounds good, but the reality is that all of us don't, aren't nice to each other. It just doesn't ever seem to happen. And this, again, is all rooted in this assumption of a simplistic, erroneous view of human nature held by so many people today. Again, my question is, why do people think that we ought to be nice? If we all believe in evolutionary theory, then it should be the survival of the fittest. It should be an assumption that I don't care about you, I just want to survive. They have no real moral basis upon which to base a lot of their own assumptions about how life should be lived apart from Christ in the gospel. Well, I want us to now move toward the biblical diagnosis of the problem. It's very clear, obviously, for some of us who are familiar with Scripture, but it needs to be repeated, and that is, when will all of these naive sentiments be abandoned? At what point are we going to admit that the belief in the inherent goodness of mankind, of human nature, cannot really be defended very convincingly. Again, the theory that people are good is, is so part of an assumption that people have held for many years. I think of Anne Frank, uh, who just as a teenager, and I realized she was only a teenager, she was living in a time in the world which there was awful, awful suffering and war. And here she is um, eventually dying in a concentration camp at the age of 16. So she wrote earlier in her life, she says this, Again, mind you all that's going on among the Jews and how they are being so brutally mistreated. She writes, it's difficult in times like these. She says, ideals, dreams, and cherished hopes arise within us, only to be crushed by a grim reality. That's so true. We want things to be better than they are, and yet we look and see continued war and shootings and bombings and terrorist acts. Then she says this, it's a wonder I haven't abandoned all my ideals. They seem so absurd and impractical. So she admits it seems a little strange that she would hold on to them. And yet she says, yet I cling to them because I still believe in spite of everything 
that people are truly good at heart. Now that to me is, a, is grasping at straws. That's a, a blind leap into the dark. You're believing against reality of what is so obvious to everyone. She even admitted it. It's, it's not even something that seems well thought through. And yet we want to hold on to that. All of the advancements and inventions that we've made century after century and all of the sophistication of now what we have in our, in our culture and society, yet we still have every person at the core of their being still remains in the same orientation and the same um, uh, nature, and that is we have a bent in our heart toward evil. The reason why our world is so divided the reason why people are so um, unable to share the same purpose and unwilling to pursue the same mindset is according to the Bible. Jesus said, out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and slanders and false witnesses. It's not because of society. It's not because of a lack of money and resources. It's not because of your parents. It's because of things that come out of our hearts that these kinds of difficulties arise. It's James in his book, in chapter 4, asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why do these things happen? Why can't people get along? James asks. He says, is it not, is not the source of your pleasures the ones that are waging war in your members? He talks about your desires are really at the core of what is going on in a marriage that is not doing well together, among siblings that are not getting along together, among students in school, among people in the society. These are the really issues of the heart. It's the desire of the human heart that is battling against the desire of somebody else's heart. And this idolatry is driving this kind of of division. It is, Jesus, it is uh, the scriptures that said in Jeremiah chapter 17, 9, the heart is more deceitfully wicked than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? This biblical perspective insists that the core problem is the inherent sinful, selfish nature of man. And Paul identified the problem here in this text, Philippians 1 and verse part of verse chapter 2. He sees that the self-serving pattern of human nature, the idea of tearing others down in order to build ourselves up. Obviously, many of us have seen and have witnessed this regular basis, the blatant, defiant determination to gain advantage over other people by using any and all means available. People don't hesitate. It is just brutal. So much of human nature is the outward fruit of selfish ambition. I want what I want. All of us have a tendency, of course, to look out for moi, for number one, for me, myself, and I. We put our wants, our desires, our preferences, our taste, our demands, before anyone else or anything else. And when other people do the same, and they're living for their wants and their desires and their preferences, then is it any wonder that we have a train wreck 
regarding relationships in society. We shouldn't be surprised when we see all of this bitterness, this jealousy, this contentiousness that characterizes human relationships. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Paul then encourages the idea that there should be nothing done from empty conceit. Empty conceit. What an interesting phrase. It literally means empty glory. No surprise then that the King James, translated 1611, translated it vain glory. Refers to this highly exaggerated view of oneself, the overinflated sense of self in one's accomplishments, one's abilities, one's, one's value. It's just so evident in our society today. Everyone is made to feel good about themselves, that you are so wonderfully good. I think of uh, this just sort of the humorous and, and also sad situation of, I don't know how many of you ever watched years ago, American Idol. I could only sit through so much of it after a while. But anyway, uh, there were the various times where they were trying out and they were, contestants were brought in one after the other to sing a little bit of one particular song and so oftentimes had no accompaniment. And so numerous examples of people who would exhibit this overconfident self-assurance. Because there they would, they would audition for this show and they would literally, they could not sing at all. It sounded like they were sort of talking in some melodic way, I guess you'd say. Uh, they were singing was just awful, off-key, lacking any musical skill, and yet when they got that kind of feedback from one particular judge years ago, they would do what? They would become offended. They would say, oh, what? You, you don't know what you're talking about. And they would say, I know that I deserve to have a recording contract. Nobody in their right mind would want to listen to them sing. And yet they're convinced that they are such excellent singers. And that's the problem, my friend, is that empty conceit for many of us, it's blind. We don't know that we have those kinds of elevated views of ourselves. And yet it's so easy to entertain thoughts like this. You know, I am really better than you. I know better than you. And that I deserve better than you that I should probably be the one to go first here, and that I deserve to have my life and my preferences brought forward rather than you. The subtlety is often so overlooked by even those of us who are followers of Christ. But oh, it leaves such a wide swath of relational destruction in our society at large, in our communities, in our families, even in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul put his finger on a real heart issue going on at the root of all of this divisiveness in our society. The question is raised then, but does merely telling people to do nothing out of selfishness, telling people to do nothing out of empty conceit, does that make any difference? I mean, really just telling them to do that? Obviously, the answer is no. That brings us to our point number three this morning. What is the biblical prescription for peace? Well, 
It's got to be more than just begging, pleading, urging, and threatening people to stop being proud and selfish. That's not the answer. That's going to do nothing for us. There's only one solution to this destructive human trait. There's only one way we'll ever see a reversal in the heart of a person so that that person will ask himself or ask herself, what's best for other people in this situation? What can I do for the betterment of others rather than just merely looking out for my own self-interests? A change of motivation, a change of attitude is only possible when a person has a new heart. A new heart because the scriptures say a bad tree will produce bad fruit. And so until you change the heart, whatever's coming out of that heart is just going to keep with the same nature as the heart is. And so the scriptures tell us again and again that the unbeliever is spiritually dead. He's cut off from Christ. He's cut off from God. His innate proud nature will always get the upper hand. What is necessary and needful is that a person be born again. To have a new heart. To be given new life in Christ. And you'll see there in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's clear that Paul appealed there in Philippians to believers, to people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel, who have been brought alive by the Holy Spirit, and he appeals to them on the basis of the grace of Christ in the gospel. He assumes that there's only one way a person will esteem other people better than himself. There's only one thing that will expose conceited hearts. There's only one thing that will reveal selfishness in all of its ugly forms. What is that one thing? The only thing that will attack the pride of human heart is to contemplate Jesus Christ dying on that cross. It is the cross of Christ. The humble-making power of the cross. It's probably not a very good phrase I picked, but there's the only place you're going to find power to bring about a shaping of a heart to be more oriented toward humility. It's through the cross. The cross exposes us as helpless sinners. The cross brings conviction to the human heart. The cross crucifies the pride of man. It's the only God-ordained means to radically reversing our elevated view of a perspective ourselves. Nothing but the cross can make a person esteem others more than himself or herself. The only way any of us will ever learn humility is to be made new in Christ. And the only as we view ourselves as the chief of all sinners, like Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in which he described himself having gone through and looked at how his life matched up to the law, to the Ten Commandments. He talks in that text about, no, I'm not a law keeper, I'm not a law keeper, I'm not a law keeper. And therefore he says, I realized finally I was crushed by the fact that I am the worst of all sinners. He says, we must be united to Christ by faith. It's Christ who did not overestimate himself, but Christ humbled himself upon that cross. And only a crucified Savior can impart to us what this world desperately needs. Unity of purpose. Unity of peace. Unity of harmony that is, comes from being united to Christ. The only hope that your family will ever know the unity of purpose and peace and harmony is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is the gracious work of Christ in regeneration. The only hope of this church, or any church, will be characterized by the unity of purpose and peace and harmony is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel calls us to do what? Come and die to yourself. Take up your cross and put to death the pride in your life and follow Christ who himself walked in great humility. We are called by Christ to forsake selfishness and to empty conceit and to admit our desperate need for a Savior. And knowing Christ, Him crucified, is the only hope we'll find true peace and unity in this world. And I've given you a quote in your notes uh, by, by Tim Keller in this little book he put out recently regarding self-forgetfulness. He talks about how the gospel helps us operate in a different fashion. I'll read this for you in conclusion. In Christianity, the moment we believe, Christ, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. Now, I, as a Christian, can perform on the basis of God's verdict. Because God loves me and he accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. Not so I can feel better about myself. Not so I can fill up the emptiness. I do them as an overflow of the love I have for Christ, who humbled himself, gave himself for me, that we might live new lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we are once again reminded of this rather humbling, harsh reality that it is our own wicked hearts that are at the heart of so many problems in our society today, within our marriages, within our church, within our families, within our schools, within our workplaces. Lord, we recognize that the problem in the world is with ourselves, with me. We thank you that you have given us a solution, that you have given us your only Son. We thank you that Jesus Christ humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, that he might help us put to death our pride and our self-centeredness and our self-focus. We pray, Father, that you might help us to see how the gospel liberates your people to be able to love others, to humble ourselves, to give and serve, and allow others to go first and to seek their best interests. Not because, Lord, we're trying to gain something that we need, but because you have given us what we don't deserve. We pray, Lord, you would continue to bring through us greater awareness of areas that we need to humble ourselves, ask forgiveness where necessary. We need to be more willing to receive others, and welcome others into our circle of friends. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to be those who share the gospel, who point others to Christ, who speak of the grace of Christ in our own lives. And through our own example, Lord, 
help to bring forth the light of the hope we have only in the gospel and in Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.